Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Mensel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about supplements and what folks like us are doing to hold off memory loss. We'll ask you whether chocolate can make you smarter. We'll impress you with a Frenchman's voyage in a barrel. We'll mourn the passing of a very special gastropod. We'll discuss which non-exercise is best for you. And we'll celebrate television's longest-running game show. In the Old Dogs interview, we'll talk with Chris Cyberling, a man who started off as a photographer and is ending up as a photographer after a fashion. Paul, there's something on my mind today. Well, how unusual. What's on your mind? Well, I can't quite remember what it is. (laughs) Wait a second. You asked me to help you remember that we are dealing with uh, supplements that improve your memory. That's it. Yep. That's it. There are people out there who are willing to sell us products for a lot of money that are guaranteed to improve our memory and avoid dementia. I mean, Can you name a couple of Well, them? everybody knows about ginkgo biloba, right? right yeah. We've all heard about that. Uh, there's something called coenzyme Q10. Yep, I've done uh, that. Hyperzyme A, caprylic acid, coconut oil, uh, coral calcium, whatever that is. Fish oil. Fish oil, uh, you know, omega-3 fatty acids. Well, I do that too. Man, I'll take anything. Right? Well, you know, that might actually work. I don't know. Because fish, you know. Because fish live long, <laughs> and their memories are their memories are, are really fantastic. sharp. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think what's true is that none of these supplements, with the exception of omega three, can prove that they can improve your brain function. Right. So, what if you could invent your own supplement, Paul? What do you think? You mean combine some of these uh, ingredients into a super pill? Sure. I mean, other people have done it. Why not you? You know, I would take a pill that would improve your memory. Yes. If it were called, uh, whatchamacallit. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I I have come up with some substitutes. There are ways you can uh, help your memory, for well, example. like what? Well, you record it on your phone. Yeah. Uh, or you can just ask your spouse, if you have one, to remember for you. Yeah, I mean, make it her problem. I'm in the car, right? We're driving someplace, and my wife will say, remember to remind me to do something. You know what I'm saying? What <laughs> oh, makes get, you think? I get that, too. <laughs> so you could just play that back. Well, right. you're going to have to remind me to remind you to remind you. And, yeah. you know, it's an endless loop there. Good news, though, that I have heard about memory aids, at least short term. That coffee is supposed to sharpen your mind. Not only coffee, but chocolate. Chocolate. And that brings us to our first pod nugget. So does chocolate really make you smarter? This next pod nugget comes from another podcast called Everyday Einstein, hosted by Sabrina Steerwalt at the Quick and Dirty Tips website. Her episode, number 186, is titled... Can eating chocolate make you smarter? Now, I like this kind of science. Yeah, me too. It starts with a brief history of the consumption of chocolate. Come on, there's no brief history. It then flows into describing a study that linked eating chocolate with increased visual-spatial memory and abstract reasoning. Well, that's all the motivation I needed to reach for a piece of chocolate or two. I'm all for health tips that taste good. She goes on to explain some of the science behind the study, the antioxidant properties of cocoa, and possible directions for future research. 
Now, if you want that information, we need to refer you to the podcast. And as for me, well, you know, she had me at increased visual spatial memory. It just sounds like something you need more of, Jim. Don't Doesn't you think? everybody? Her conclusion, I've written on a note card and placed above my computer as a meditation. There is growing evidence that chocolate, when consumed in moderation, Paul, may make us happier, healthier, and even smarter people. I'll drink to that. That podcast is called Everyday Einstein. A 71-year-old Frenchman named Jean-Jacques Savin is crossing the Atlantic in a barrel. Well, to be accurate, it's a barrel-shaped vessel made of plywood that's 10 feet long and 6 and 2 thirds feet wide. This pod nugget was featured in the New York Times on December 27, 2018, and by the time you hear it, his voyage may be done. The vessel has no form of man-made propulsion. It is designed to float on the water propelled by ocean currents. The interior contains a small bed, a captain's seat, and a kitchen counter with barely room to stand. That sounds like my first apartment, actually. <laughs> it sounds like my current apartment. He has small portholes on each side and the bottom of his capsule for viewing and satellite technology for orientation. Of course, being a Frenchman, he also found room for a three-month supply of Bordeaux and foie gras. Uh, no chocolate? No. Mr. Savant is not a crackpot. He has crossed the ocean four times in a sailboat, or maybe that makes him an experienced crackpot. At any rate, he hopes to complete his journey in three months, celebrating his 72nd birthday while bobbing in the ocean in January. So here's a toast to Mr. Savant for howling at the moon through a porthole. Sad news, Paul. George died at the age of 14 in Kailua, Hawaii. Oh, no. Yep. It was not unexpected. Although he was just a teenager, authorities assure us that he lived a long life for his species. You see, George was a snail of the land snail species, Achit... <laughs> uh, a Catanella apex fulva, and 14 was a good long life for his kind. This obituary comes to us from the New York Times, dated January 10th, 2019. So, how come a lowly snail rates a mention in the newspapers? Right. I mean, he was certainly handsome, mm. described as a swirling scoop of mocha fudge. <laughs> but that wasn't the reason. It seems that George was the last of his species. Achitanella apex fulva is now extinct. Authorities are hoping that he can become the poster snail for species that are becoming extinct. It's estimated that dozens of species go extinct every day. Dr. David Sisko, who heads the state-run Snail Extinction Prevention Program, oh, said... Oh, you're kidding me. No, Wait, that's an actual program. Look, I'm not making this up. Okay. He said, if anything good comes from this extinction, it will be the recognition that we have a lot to lose and we don't have a lot of time. There is a ray of hope for future Georges. A two-millimeter piece of George's foot is being preserved so that someday soon we will have the technology to clone a snail. Now, do snails have feet? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But they don't have shoes. You know, lots of sitting around isn't good for you. In fact, that's why Paul and I do all of these podcasts on a treadmill. 
Sitting can increase our risk of diabetes, heart disease, reduced blood flow to the brain, and binge-watching TV programs. All those things worth living. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, of course, researchers decided to launch a study to measure the difference in calories burned between sitting and standing. This pod nugget comes to us from the New York Times, dated January 2nd, 2019. Volunteers were fitted with a mask that measures their metabolic rate. They had each volunteer lie down, sit, and stand for 20 minutes while wearing the masks. They were allowed to fidget as much as they liked, and then they compared the calories burned in each position. The volunteers burned 3% more calories sitting than lying down. They burned 12% more calories standing than sitting. Now, before you get excited, this amounts to burning nine additional calories an hour standing compared to sitting. This won't make up for the Twinkie you ate because you were bored while you were standing. However, there is an interesting twist. Oh, good. Some people burn more calories while seated compared to standing because they fidgeted so much while seated. <laughs> Who knew that fidgeting had health benefits? And, of course, this information will lead to some new workouts, like uh, fidget aerobics. Oh, max fidgeting. Uh-huh, or maybe fidget, fidget yoga. yoga. Imagine sitting around with friends and guessing the price of things. Boring. Well... Add an easygoing host, nine unbelievably excited contestants, and a loud studio audience, and you have the formula for the longest-running game show in the history of television, The Price is Right. This pod nugget comes to us from the Washington Post for January 11th, 2019. The Price is Right was initially launched in 1956. Then it was relaunched in 1972 with Bob Barker as host. He remained the host for 35 years until 2007. He was replaced by Drew Carey, who has been the host for the last 12. Now, the concept is low skill. You guess the prices stuff. Over the years, the stuff has gotten more upscale, but the main driver of the show is a set of highly excitable contestants and a loud studio audience who shout out their idea of the right price. It's the entertainment equivalent of a prison riot. (laughs) Make no mistake, the show is extremely popular. There are versions in 42 different countries and territories, and a live touring show with a separate cast that does 150 performances a year to sell out crowds. It's a big hit. Now, it may not be your kind of entertainment, but it is for millions of people. It's been described as the comfort food of television. It is kind of fun to see the relentless joy that contestants get from guessing the price of a can of soup. No kidding. Can of soup? 79 cents. Really? Chris Cyberling is a man who at an early age learned the value of using a compass. This knowledge has guided him through careers as a photographer, a teacher, an IT developer, a Harvard administrator, an overseas consultant, and a data management professional. Now in retirement, Chris has taken on the task of photographing an iconic feature of the western United States, the 37th parallel. Tell me, what sort of has motivated you to do what you have done over the past 50 years or so? Well, um, there are times when uh, motivation was strictly um, house and home, starvation and uh, uh, clothing. (laughs) And uh, other times, you know, I think that trying to figure out uh, what the world is about and what my place is in it is ultimately a kind of motivation. 
uh, as a child, um, I learned how to uh, box a compass on a boat. If you're trying to navigate with a compass, you had to be able to trust the compass precisely. And uh, the compass would not point correctly at all locations. It would be influenced by the presence of metal in the boat. So with my father, we uh, set up a range on the island that pointed to the North Star and then went out on the water and drove the boat uh, toward this range and observed the difference between what the compass was indicating and, of course, the exact true north that we were traveling. Mm -hmm. And using this kind of technique, uh, we determined exactly how to calibrate the compass. And uh, I suppose on some level I've been thinking about similar kinds of calibration ever since. The question is, what are what are the lines by which you're determining your sense of uh, stability or, or reason uh, or uh, understanding of the world? Where is the latitude and longitude of your life? How do you measure where you are? Well, that certainly sets up how you have handled the changes in your life ever since. I was fascinated to learn that one of your current projects is to photograph and document the 37th parallel across the middle of the United States. Uh, what exactly prompted you to do it, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, uh, the line across that separates Kansas from Oklahoma, Colorado from New Mexico, and Utah from Arizona, long straight line along the 37th parallel, was drawn originally uh, in 1854 to separate slave territories from free territories uh, as they were being uh, laid out after the uh, Mexican War opened up this huge amount of territory for exploration and, um, if you will, invasion by Americans. And um, the good senators in Washington were looking at maps that included giant areas that said unknown. They literally didn't know what there was out there. But they had no trouble thinking in their heads that we can just draw this line and establish boundaries around these giant areas, and uh, these will define how people should organize themselves when they head west. Well, in 1857, the Dred Scott decision, among other things, declared that Congress did not have the right to establish any area as slave-free. So the, in a way, the the line was mooted uh, even before any surveys were actually done. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, this line has persisted. Hmm. Uh, so there is something about the, the power of this line that I still find uh, curious. It would have been intelligent, as John Wesley Powell declared very emphatically in 1879, that these territories should be organized according to watershed. Right. Uh, and... Even today, we have battles among the states over where the vanishing Colorado River water is supposed to go that would have been a lot easier to resolve had we listened to John Wesley Powell. Uh, but nevertheless, we stayed with the, the straight line concept. Um, I mean, Colorado's a pretty much a simple rectangle. Utah is a, a straight line polygon, um, and the rest of the borders are are pretty simply drawn. So along this 37th parallel, we have this 
distinction between them, the kind of arbitrary, abstract notion of the straight line, and the the beautiful arid landscape that it goes through. So I'm fascinated by this process of how do the surveyors actually calibrate their lines? How do we go through this landscape and imagine trying to establish an understanding of the landscape? Do we need a line in order to grasp the significance of the place? You know, on the one hand, medieval Europeans lived by meets and bounds, borders and lines. The Navajos, on the other hand, as near as I understand it, look at the landscape in terms of space, not in terms of borders. So I'm fascinated by this contradiction of the theoretical governmental value of the line and the actual natural landscape and what the people who actually live in the land think about it and how they live accordingly. So there are giant pivot irrigators in Kansas and Oklahoma that sweep right up to the border but do not cross it. Um, even in the beautiful Rio Grande del Norte National Monument, which is this high plateau where you can see for miles and no one's there, there's still a fence line on the border. Hmm. I mean, there's Robert Frost's Mending Wall poem mm-hmm. in, in which he quotes his neighbor as saying, uh, good fences make good neighbors. Yeah. And, of course, the, the poem is about the irony of the fact that they don't need a fence at all. They don't need a, a wall because... As he puts it, his apple trees aren't going to climb the wall and eat the pine cones on, on his neighbor's side. So this ambivalence about the value of the border or the value of the wall is kind of what I'm interested in. What is it there for, and why do we care? Um, I, I'd like to ask you what product you intend to generate from the project. What is your intention in doing this project that will result in a product? Well, there are two things. There are two kinds of products. Uh, one is I'm, uh, as I'm going along, I'm keeping something of a, a record of the locations and the uh, stories that I'm developing on my website, which is 37thparallel.org. Um, and I've written sort of outlines or a couple of paragraphs about some of the locations, and I intend to to magnify those as we go along, maybe I'll put together a, a book of some kind, not clear. Um, and it's taking time because, you know, I went out, for example, and did, um, you know, a 10-day trip between Canab, Utah, and Raton, New Mexico. And, you know, that's only uh, about a third of the whole length of the line. And I've got to go back to um, locations actually within that um, to go to some spots that were hard to find. And uh, so I'm going to be going back repeatedly to this line to fill out the story. The second thing that I'm doing is I'm making large prints um, using a 19th century process called cyanotype. Uh, These are basically five feet wide by, let's say, a foot and a half to two feet tall. Um, These are generally panoramic images, and I think they're really interesting images, and I'd like to put them together in a, some kind of a photographic show. I don't know exactly what that, when or how that's going to come off, but um, right now I'm just gathering the images. Okay. Uh, so there, some kind of artistic output, which is related to but not identical to the philosophical musing about the line that I'm trying to put on the website. 
Well, what impressed me the first time we talked about this and what continues to impress me is the energy that you are able to put into this. You are uh, in your 70s. You've done a lot of things that would wear other people out. But it sounds like you still have a tremendous amount of energy and focus and enthusiasm for this project. Do you think that this project is going to wear you out, or do you think that it's going to energize you to do other things? You know, it's interesting for me having some kind of a focus to keep going in terms of exploring, uh, you know, heart and mind and along with the physical landscape is uh, a great thing. So, yeah, uh, I'll do this until I feel like I've finished with it, and then I feel like, all right, I'll pick some other kind of project that will focus uh, attention for a considerable amount of time. What's interesting is finding a way to be physically active, to muse about the future, to think about you know, time, space, and long-term, unending ideas. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon. <laughs>